Father, thank you for bringing us together again tonight and for giving us this great book of Hebrews. What a wonderful book it is. Um, I have wanted an opportunity to teach it, but it was just not appropriate in so many other settings. So thank you for giving us this privilege. Now, Father, uh, as we come to some of the real delightful stuff to us, uh, open our hearts that we may receive it. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, we've got to do uh, 8.1 to 9.14 tonight. The plan that I have is um, 8.1 to 9.14, 9.15 to 10, 11, uh, 10, 12 to, um, gosh, I, I should go all the way to verse, well, no, t- i got to start at 10.12, 10.12 to 12.11, 10, 12 and then 10, 10, actually 10.18, I guess it is. 10.18, so 10.19 to 12.11, and then uh, the rest of 12 and 13 for the next four nights, so uh, we're off and running. We, we should be able to do that. So, uh, so we're going to do 11 weeks? Yeah, well, we'll go ahead with the 11th. We got that free week in the middle, so <laughs> uh, that'll give a little extra time for doing some other things uh, in more depth. So we start with Hebrews 8.1, <clears throat> and you'll see that the author gives some kind of a, an indication that he's, he's making a change. See the wording of verse 1? Um, you have something like, hmm? well, not only now, but the sum. Um, yeah, the main point. <laughs> um, main point may not be the exact, the, the exact sense. One of the translations reads the crowning point or the... Or the um, what was there was another the the peak, uh, so here's here he's coming really to the 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 marrow the to the real climax, climax of well climax of of his argument, the book has two parts as we argued the first night, uh, one five you get an introduction and one one to four, and then from one five through ten eighteen, the author is arguing for the supremacy of Christ, beginning at ten nineteen. And going someplace into chapter 13, I'm not sure how far into 13, whether it's really 13 is just a conclusion or if there's, there's a, a continuation into chapter 13. From, that, from 1019 on, he's arguing for the, simpli- the, the um, implications of the supremacy of Christ. What difference does it make? Um, and so um, we're going to have to spend some significant time in chapter 10, and then in chapter 11, uh, obviously, and also chapter 12. That's going to be it's going to be a tough night. We've got three critically uh, important passages, so um, uh, that particular night we're going to have to do some um, thinking about how to say this as briefly as possible, but also get everything in that's important. Uh, but now he's coming to the kind of climax of the argument for the supremacy of Christ. Chapters eight, nine, and ten are going to be the main are, be, are going to be a key portion of the book, and some of the most important things for us are in this passage. <clears throat> we talked last not last week about uh, how how important high priesthood is, and yet that just doesn't hit us deeply. High priesthood. I, I don't feel the need of a priest. I've never had a priest that I could recognize, that I could see. Yes, 
I've had a priest, Jesus, all along, but what you've always had, you hardly ever notice. <laughs> yes? So uh, you only notice it when it's no longer available. So since it's never been not available, I don't know what that would look like. Um, but now we're going to get into New Covenant and um, uh, the significance of the New Covenant and the especially the sacrifice of Christ in chapter 9. So got some awfully important things to talk about. So chapter 8, uh, in verses 1 to 6, he's going he's gonna to switch the, the discussion from the significance of the high priesthood and, and the replacement of the Aaronic priesthood to the high priesthood as mediating a covenant. As we said last week, 7-11, you remember this? Hebrews 7-11. Uh, if um, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law. Remember this? We talked about that. Um, uh, Jesus also is the basis of a new covenant as a high priest. And so we've got to talk about that new covenant. So he's going to introduce that in 8, 1 to 6. So the, yes, Fred? When the term new covenant is used in Hebrews, is that the same as New Testament, Old Testament. No, we'll talk about that shortly, so let's uh, press on here. The sum of, of the things that have been saying is this. We have so such a high priest as one who has sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Um, a minister of, the, of holy things, is that what you have? In the, in the sanctuary, it's a good translation. Um, a minister of the sanctuary and of the ta- of the true tabernacle, which God, which the Lord made, not man. So here, Jesus is functioning as as Hebrews seven has argued in heaven, um, and all of this is is now established. So he's bringing this to a peak, and he will turn the discussion to say a high pr- a, a priest has to have a sacrifice, and priesthood in the Old Testament is inherently tied up with covenants. So we're going to have those two things now introduced. And frequently, when Hebrews gives a list of things and he starts to unpack the list, he'll start with the last one and work his way back to the first. <laughs> so he's going to do that here. So verse 3, every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices to God. For this reason, it was necessary that this one have something to offer and if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since those who make who who bring offerings according to the law. Um, uh, I'm sorry. Um, since those who who are uh, ministering the sacrifices according to the law bring the gifts, um, these are people who serve in the pattern and in the shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was told uh, when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern that was shown to you in the mountain. So you've got this this um, uh, sacrifice ministry that is critical. But here's the second point that's critical about high priesthood as far as chapter 8 is concerned. But now he has obtained a better ministry which is established on better promises, being the, um, the uh, mediator of a better covenant. Um, so here is this priest. We have two things to deal with then, covenant 
so taking them in reverse order, covenant and priesthood and sacrifice. So first, covenant. For if that first, do you have first covenant in your text? Yes. Yeah, that's it's the word covenant's not in Greek, but it's uh, the form of the word entails that it's dealing with with the covenant. If that first covenant had been faultless, no place would have been sought for a second. Now that raises a question. If it's not faultless, then what is it? Yeah. Faulty. Faulty. A covenant given by God is faulty? No. (laughs) I did. And that's the problem. How can... How can I say that something God did was faulty, and yet the text says that the covenant was not faultless? Well, it wasn't run by humans. It was run by God. Yeah. We don't know that yet. That's in chapter 10. <laughs> but, but you're right. But, but in chapter 7, uh, perfection didn't come through the priesthood which is the basis of the covenant. Yes? And if you can't get the fulfillment through the priesthood that the covenant, that ministers the covenant, what's the point of the covenant? I've had conversations like this around, uh, uh, around the campus, and I can't get people to see that the law was not given to bless Israel. God knew they were not going to get blessed by means of the law. Are you with me here? You don't know this? Did not, didn't God know Israel's history before it occurred? Yes. Did, did they ever get blessing because they were righteous and kept the law? He thought we did, and I've been taught all my life that we do too. Show me in the Old Testament where that happened. No, no, I'm I know what, I know. And this is my response to that issue. Is, did Israel ever get blessing because they were obedient? I don't think, I think the answer is not, is no, they never did. Then why did they ever get, did they ever get blessing? Oh, yeah. Then why? The mercy of God, the grace of God gave them, gave them blessing, but not the covenant. The covenant was not given. This is Romans 4.15, the law works wrath. Uh, This is Romans 5.20. Yes, 20. The law came in alongside that the transgression might increase. Are you with me? Um, this is 1 Timothy 1.8. The law is not appointed for a righteous man, but for sinners and the wicked. Are you with me here? It, off, it offers blessing. But, but before, turn, to, turn to Deuteronomy um, 30. I want to show you what Moses knows about Israel. And if Moses knows it, does God know it? If Moses knows it, does God know it? Yeah. Well, let, me, let me show you what Moses knows about Israel. I'll tell you the verse in, in a minute here. Deuteronomy 31. Um, Actually, it's Deuteronomy 31. Verse 24. <clears throat> It came about when Moses finished writing these words in this, in, in, of this law in the book 
until they were complete that Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may remain there as a witness. What does against you mean? Yeah, you're going to be shown to be guilty by, by this law, yes? So as a witness against you, what verse was that? Verse 26. Now, now notice, is my interpretation right? We'll look at verse 27. For I know your rebellion and your stubbornness. Behold, while I'm still alive with you today, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more then after my death? If Moses knows that, does God know it? Yeah. In fact, if you were to read Deuteronomy 32, what you would find, Deuteronomy 32 is what we're leading up to in, at the end of chapter 31. See, I know that because I have a doctor from Dallas Seminary. But, but he's actually preparing for the, the, the final really important passage in the Pentateuch. The really important passages of the Pentateuch are not the Ten Commandments. The really important passages, there are four. Genesis 49, Exodus 15, Numbers 23 and 24, and Deuteronomy 32 and 33. There are four poetic passages that sum up and explain the significance of everything that's been going on in, in the story up to that point. This is where Moses sums up everything. Deuteronomy 32 is one of the reasons that people say, scholars say, Deuteronomy was written very late because it tells the history of Israel before it occurs. And the history of Israel is like this. God give, brings them out of Egypt and gives them all kinds of gifts, and they rebel. And then he gives them more gifts, and they rebel. And he gives them more blessings, and they rebel. And they give them, he gives them more blessings, and they rebel. And finally, he comes to the point where um, nothing's working. So he's going to have to bring him salvation by himself. In times such as when David achieved victory over his enemy, yeah. was it not thought that that's because he did something good? I didn't say that. I asked you, did Israel ever get blessing because they were obedient? David got blessing, yes. But I'm not talking about David. I'm talking about the nation. But wouldn't it be said that when the nation was restored, winning the battle, that they no. received blessing? no. What about the book of Joshua? Of Joshua, Lots of victory there, yes? yes. Turn to Joshua 24. Well, they didn't. Well, they, they weren't supposed to destroy them all in the story in, Gen, in Joshua. That's, it. That's what follows in Judges. That's what they're supposed to be doing in Judges. But look in, Judges, in Joshua 24. <clears throat> this is, these are the last words of Joshua. How important are last words? And in biblical narrative, when you stop and get a speech, the speech tends to sum up the whole point of what's been going on in the story. It's kind of like poetry in those four passages in, in the Pentateuch. So Joshua tells them the story of how they got from Mount Sinai to this point. He's on the verge of his death or, or expecting his death in the next few years. And he tells them the story up to that, up to that point. Um, um, verse uh, 19. Then Joshua said to the people, You will not be able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgression or sins. 
If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. The people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. Joshua said to the people, Your witnesses against yourselves um, that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. Now verse 23. Now therefore put away the foreign gods that are among you. When did they pick those up? (laughs) Why did God give them victory in the book of Joshua? Because of their obedience? They love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their strength. And the idols that they pick up here and there. Or make. Are you with me here? When does Israel, as a nation ever get blessing because they are obedient to the covenant? Essentially never. Turn to Psalm 78. This will be the last of these passages. And since you mentioned David, Fred, we'll go especially to Psalm 78. Um, Psalm 78 is a very long psalm, 70-some verses, as I recall. Um, 72 verses. It's a history psalm. At least it's often categorized that way. It really isn't a historical psalm. It's more of a prophetic exhortation psalm. Uh, So you start out with a call for the people to listen. Verse 5, you you get, for he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children not yet born, that they may arise and tell them to their children that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep, notice this, not forget the works of God, um, but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and, what fathers is he talking about here? A stubborn and rebellious generation. All the way back to Joshua. And this is probably written in the days of David. Egypt too, but we, as far as our reading goes tonight, it takes us certainly all the way back to Joshua and back to Deuteronomy. So I start, verse 9, the sons of Ephraim were archers equipped with bows, yet they turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law. They forgot his deeds and his miracles that he had shown them. He wrought wonders before their fathers in the land of Egypt and the land in the field of Zoan, He divided the sea and caused them to pass through. He made the waters stand up like a heap. Then he led them with the cloud by day and all the night with a light of fire. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them abundant drink like the ocean depths. He brought forth streams also from the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. Yet they still continued to sin. And this is the pattern. If you read on through, this is very similar to Deuteronomy 32 the good things that God has done, and the rebellion that Israel responds to his work with. Until you get to the end of the psalm, verse 65, and it's very much like Deuteronomy 32 at this point. Then the Lord awoke as from a sleep, like a warrior overcome by wine. He drove his adversaries backward. He put on them an everlasting reproach. He also rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, 
but chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. And he built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He also chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from the care of the ewes, from suckling lambs. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with his skillful hands. Now, what's the point of Psalm 78? Every blessing God has ever given Israel, they have responded with rebellion. This is the crowning blessing in this psalm. Don't don't rebel against David, (laughs) is essentially the message of the psalm. That's why I call it a prophetic exhortation psalm. You You need to serve David. I don't know when in David's ministry that this would have been written, but sometime during his, his uh, reign, perhaps when Absalom's rebellion occurred, this would be a pro- an appropriate psalm. But we don't know the setting, so we have to just say it's sometime in the days of David, or possibly Solomon. My point is, I, I have a record throughout the Old Testament. No matter how much good God does for Israel, Israel re- rebels. So why does God ever bless them? It's not because of the Mosaic Covenant. He did not give the covenant to bless. He gave the covenant for a basic reason, folks. Why do we make laws? There are bad people, and we need some way justly to deal with the bad people. Without laws, I can't deal with them. I can talk about them. I can dislike them, I can, I, can, I can give them a bad reputation in the community, I can't do anything else to them, I can't punish them. Yes? So when a law is made, you want to know at what point does it become um, um, actionable. So if you're a businessman and a new law is made and you read it and you think, oh my gosh, we've been doing this for the last 10 years, <laughs> you want to know when they can start prosecuting yes that's pretty important so if it's made retroactive then you've got to know this and get ready i don't know whether you can do that i don't know whether it's legal to do that at this point it's legal almost to do anything but the the uh the large issue is without the law you really can't punish evildoers so that's why first timothy 1 8 says that the law is not for the righteous it's for the wicked it's why Romans 4.15 says the law works wrath. It's why Romans 5.20 says the law came in alongside so that the transgressions might increase, so that there'd be more transgression, so that sin would become obvious and blatant and everybody would know it's sin. Are you with me then? Yeah, okay. That addresses the civil part of the law, but mm-hmm. not the spiritual part. Same thing, same thing. It's what we've been seeing in Romans 7, that the law coupled with our indwelling sin actually becomes a, an occasion for more sin. That's, that's what Romans 5.20 is really saying. So I would not have known covetousness except through the law, for I would not have uh, sin without the law. I wouldn't have known covetousness if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me every kind of covetousness, for without the law sin is dead. So that, so that Paul is picking up the ideas of chapter 1 and explaining them in terms now, not just in terms of the whole human race, explaining them in terms of Israel. And I ask you in Romans, was Israel more righteous after the law was given than they were before? And the answer is no. 
So the law didn't help Israel. Did law help Adam and Eve, who didn't have indwelling sin, to righteousness? No. Then why do you think it's going to help you? Only grace. Only grace. That's the only hope we have. And the problem is that my legalistic heart fears grace because I think it's going to turn me loose to sin. So when I come to Romans 8 and I see the faultiness of the law, it's not that it's faulty. It didn't do what it was supposed to do. It didn't do what the people needed it to do. In other words, if I live by the law, a fellow said to me some days ago, but if we obey the law, wouldn't we uh, achieve righteousness and salvation? The answer has to be no. Because if I've ever sinned, even once in my life, I've incurred an infinite penalty because I've wronged an infinite person. Yes? So the, the infinite penalty, even, even a moment of not loving God with all my heart, soul, and strength merits an infinite penalty. So no amount of subsequent loving God can ever make up for that one moment that I failed because I owed him that for that moment. And every moment subsequently that I love God with all my heart, soul, and strength, I owe. So I can never go beyond what, I've already, what I already owe. I'm, I'm then sunk without a high priest and a covenant and a sacrifice. Jim? So does the, our indwelling sin in this analogy to the law, it couldn't fulfill the law. That is the same analogy as essentially in Hebrews where the old priesthood could not fulfill the, the covenant well. Or yeah. They could, well, they, could, they could do what the covenant required. But what the covenant required couldn't give the fulfillment of the blessings. So God did it, may I say sovereignly, in the Old Testament, uh, without reference to what the people were doing. But that's, you know, kind of the point. That's what grace is. Um, so I move on. Verse 6, we've made it that far, gracious. Verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless... It is not itself faulty, but it's not, it wasn't intended to give blessing to people. Okay? The books of Moses were intended to teach faith. Israel never saw the faith part. They always saw the law part. The church hardly ever sees the, the faith part in Moses. Almost the, the only thing they ever see is the law part. That's what I was raised with. Well, yes, so was I, and most of us were, if you were raised in church. So now, now look at verse 8. The real fault is not with the law, except that the law wasn't intended to give the blessing. It was intended to punish the wicked. I say again, look at Deuteronomy 28, not now, don't turn there now, but 68 verses of blessing and curse. 14 of blessing, 54 of curse. What does that ratio suggest? Lots of yeah. What God knows they're going to experience, and it's what Moses knew too, what God knows they're going to experience is the curse and not the blessing by what they earn. So, verse 8, finding fault not with it, but with them. Do you have with them? Yeah. All right. Finding fault with them, some of our translations might read, finding fault... He said to them. 
Uh, it's not clear. This is one of the more difficult places to figure out what the original text read. But it doesn't change the, 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 uh, the message of the passage much. Finding fault with them, he says, and now he gives the longest quotation in the New Testament from the Old Testament. Then how important is it? <laughs> Pretty important. Behold, days are coming, and so this, this passage down through verse 12 is going to give us the quotation from Jeremiah 31 of the New Covenant passage. And it falls into two parts. Uh, verses um, 8 and 9 are kind of an introduction ex explaining that this, is, this has to be a different covenant because of what, what happened with the old covenant. And then verses 10 to 12 will give the terms or the recipients and the terms of the covenant. So verse 8, finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah a new covenant. Now you know why it's called a new covenant. <laughs> yes, the only place other than the New Testament where new covenant, that phrase occurs is Jeremiah 31. There's no other reference to this specific term anywhere else. There are several references to this material, but that's the only place, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. When Jesus said, this is the New Testament in my blood. Yeah, and now, now we can answer this question. The word New Testament is not talking about Matthew to Revelation. It's talking about a covenant. Testament is an unfortunate word because, especially in our day, what is a testament other than a book that you carry? It's a will. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and, and so that language, I didn't look it up. I, I've got the Oxford English Dictionary at home, but I have to use a magnifying glass, probably with another magnifying glass. The print's so small. But... Um, uh, I need to look up Testament and see what it meant in the 17th century when the King James was translated. But basically, we would do better to talk about covenants all the way through this instead of bringing in the word testament at all. We're talking about the, old, the new covenant that is then contrasted with what? If you've got a new covenant, you've got an old covenant. Well, what's the old covenant? The law. The, the Mosaic covenant, effectively. So... <clears throat> I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, which of that batch do you belong to? Neither. Neither. You see, it's, it's common in modern theology to say, well, the church is the new Israel. But then who's the new Judah? Are you with me here? Uh, one of my professors says, we are the house of Israel. We are the house of Judah. No. I-S-R-A-E-L never spells church. <laughs> Are you with me? Isn't it interesting? I don't know whether you've ever thought about this. Probably most of you haven't even thought about it. But I have never seen a church history book that starts with Abraham. Always starts with the New Testament. They always know that. So why? why? Now, we're not talking about the church. We're talking about Israel and Judah. In a book called... What's the name of this book? Hebrews. We're talking about Israel and Judah and a book called Hebrews. <laughs> Why should this be church? No, it's Israel and Judah. Are the promises of God invalidated by the unbelief of Israel? No. This is Romans chapter 3. 
if the promises are, of God are invalidated by the unbelief of Israel, then no one has any hope. Yes? So the issue has to be that Israel must get the blessing of God. Why? What, what promise? Okay, let's. I, I mean, I'm, boy, I'm do, doing too much background tonight, and I, I shouldn't do this. I don't have time. But let me do a little bit more background. <clears throat> what is God's purpose in the world? Yeah, how? Yeah, but well, yeah, good. By saving the unjust. How about Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28? And God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let me, let me paraphrase it a little bit. Let us make humanity in, in our likeness, in our, in our image according to our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish, uh, birds, of the, uh, birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the animals of the earth, and over everything that creeps upon the face of the earth. So God created humanity in his image. In the image of God created he. And Hebrew doesn't have a neuter. It has only a masculine and feminine genders, like French in this regard. Um, him, created he him. Male and female, created he them. And God blessed them and said, what? Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the birds of the, of the sky and the fish of the sea and the, and the, the, the uh, animals of the earth and everything that creeps upon the face of the earth. Observe, twice we're told something. And once it's defined as blessing. We've been talking about blessing tonight. <laughs> I didn't do that on purpose. It just happened that it... I, I don't know better way to talk about what the Mosaic Covenant was about than to talk about blessing. <clears throat> the issue is that God's purpose is, at least at this level, and what you've all said are, are correct, but I want to specify it to a certain level. God's purpose is to bring blessing to the whole human race. Would you grant that from 126 to 28, Genesis 126 to 28? But the whole human race rejected the blessing. So God started over with Noah. Well, with, uh, with uh, Seth. And then God started over with Noah, where he, where he repeated it. And God blessed Noah and his three sons and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And he didn't say, and subdue it, which is interesting. I wonder if in our fallen condition we're even able to subdue it. We're, we're probably not able to rule the earth. So he, so he repeats that to Noah. But Noah's sons all get in such a mess. Yes? That he starts over with Abraham, and to Abraham he says, And in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Are you with me here? So the goal is to bless Israel so that he can bless the nations. Israel has to be blessed, or the nations never get blessed. Are you with me? Yes or no? You follow this? All right. Um, so if that's the goal then at some point, no matter how much Israel sins, no, mag no matter how much rebellion is in their hearts, God has to save them. Read in Isaiah sometime. Um, 41 to 40, 
eight maybe. And, and look at all the sinfulness of Israel and yet the repeated promises that God gives them that he's going to deliver them. And there's no condition set upon the, upon the deliverance. It's simply, I'm going to deliver you. Are you with me? So at some point, God, in order, by the way, in Isaiah 41 to 44, no, 41 to 48, you have a courtroom scene in which God has called all the nations to court to, 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 to lay out the evidence to see who's God. And the nations are supposed to bring evidence for their gods. And ideally, the gods will show up, but they probably won't. Yeah. <laughs> and Israel is supposed to give, Israel, who is blind and deaf, is supposed to give evidence for their god. Uh, and um, uh, so in the courtroom scene, the sinfulness of Israel and, and the promise that God gave centuries before that they would go into Babylonian captivity... It's part of the evidence that he's God. But as sure as the, as the exile was, return from exile is equally necessary because on the same basis, God promises the return from exile. And if he doesn't do the return from exile like he did the exile, really in history, to a people descended from Abraham, then he loses his right to be called God according to the courtroom case. So they didn't return because they reformed. They returned because of his Because of his promise. So, back to Hebrews chapter 8. Days are coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill with the house of Israel and the house of Judah a new covenant. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand uh, to lead them out of, the, out of Egypt because they did not abide in my covenant and I, I had no care for them. Now, that's, that's the introduction to the covenant. This is a covenant that he's going to make with the house of Israel and without, with the house of, of, of Judah without reference to their obedience. Uh, go read Ezekiel 36, 16 and following, all the way to the end of the chapter sometime. And at, at, on various places in Ezekiel 36, which is a parallel passage to Jeremiah 31, he says, I'm not doing this for your sake, O Israel. Be ashamed of yourselves. But I'm going to restore you. I'm going to take away your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to sprinkle you with clean water that you'll be clean. I'll take away your idols. Are you with me here? I'm going to do it for you. I'm not wait God is not waiting. The Savior is waiting to enter your heart. Why won't you let him come in? Poor God just wants so bad to save people, and he can't because they won't let him. You heard about the Japanese, the, the a Japanese soldier who called back to headquarters and he said, Honorable Commander, I have captured 12,000 American prisoners. He said, bring them back. Wonderful. He said, they won't let me. <laughs> uh, that was a dumb old joke back when it was new. <laughs> but the, the larger issue for us is that God is not wringing his hands on the throne, hoping maybe to save somebody. He is doing what is right in saving, and he will save Israel. And, our, and, and we, um, we can be confident of that. With that in mind, then, what is this covenant going to look like? Verse 10. There are four terms to the covenant. 
I want to I want to point them out to you now, in verse ten because this is the covenant I will make in the house of, with the house of Israel after those days says the Lord when I put my laws on their understanding and write them on their hearts. This is not if you went to vacation Bible school memorizing scripture. <laughs> um, there are three passages I want you to know about. First is um, Proverbs three three. In Proverbs 3, it uses similar language to what we've just read. Proverbs 3, 3. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Are you memorizing um, kindness and truth? By the way, truth in the Old Testament more often means something like faithfulness. Um, is that something you memorize? What, do you, what, what does it mean to write kindness and faithfulness on your heart? It's now who you are. It's not what you know. It's who you are. Uh, Proverbs 7, verses 3 and 4. Now he says in verse 2, Keep my commandments and live, and my teaching as the apple of your eye. And this is the father speaking to the son, or it's the wisdom teacher talking to to the student. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. That sounds like... Maybe you ought to memorize the commandments, yes? But look at the next verse, verse 4. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call um, understanding your intimate friend, that they may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. What, are you, what, what is this that you're to be because of, you, uh, of your writing something on your heart? Wise and understanding. How do you write wisdom on your heart? The other verse is Jeremiah 17.1. Uh, 17, that's not right. What is it? 17? Oh, fish feathers. Um, ah, got the wrong verse after all. Uh, Jeremiah 17.1. The sin of Judah is written down with an iron stylus. With a diamond point, it is engraved upon the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. Have they memorized their sins? Is that the point? Yeah, their sin is what they are. What's inscribed on your heart is not what you know, it's what you do. Um, How many of you grew up with with a standard transmission driving yeah uh, it, it, how many years has it been since you've driven a standard six six thirty but you never really forget why because you've internalized it so much yeah uh, well my grand my stepfather has a six so, uh, yeah but uh, I, I drive a stick shift and when I'm driving Jan's car, I'm always reaching over for the clutch or for the, the gear shift lever. Uh, it's, just, it's just part of you, yes? You hardly even think about it. Am I right? Second nature. Second nature, and that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about um, getting all this stuff so internalized that it determines what you do without even thinking about it. So the, the issue here is not memorizing. Uh, 
There, have you ever known anybody who could quote a lot of scripture was was just as lost as he could be? Bruce Waltke uh, studied in Israel for a time. His next door neighbor was an Israeli man, Jew. He had memorized the book of, of Psalms in Hebrew, but he was an atheist. Now you would say, well, why would an atheist memorize the book of Psalms? Why does anybody memorize Shakespeare? Because they love good poetry. Yes, Psalms is great poetry. So he's mem- And so Waltke would sit with his Hebrew text open, reading as the man was reciting so he could learn how to speak Hebrew. Uh, he pronounced the, the book of Psalms in Hebrew. Are, are you with me here? But the guy was completely unmoved by the spiritual message of the book. The, the issue then is not what we learned in vacation Bible school. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. You'll either, either the Bible will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the word of God. Amen. Or, or uh, um, you, can, you can fight temptation, Jesus did, with quoting the scriptures. Yeah, and my friend said one time, Jim, haven't you ever gone down in temptation quoting scripture? And I'm like, yes, I have. <laughs> but, the, but the point is that this, this stuff has to be so much a part of us. But how do you do that? Ezekiel talks in 36 about circumcising your own heart. How do you do that? That's the first term. God's going to so change who we are, the kind of people we are, the value system, the loves, the desires, the tastes that we have, that every desire, every taste, every wish, every hope is determined by what is true before God. Does this make sense to you? And then you get in there and you live it. Uh-huh. Well, you live it because it's who you are. Yeah, it, but, but, but when God has changed us, we will live it. because, And he's already doing that. There are things you love now that you didn't love 30 years ago. Well, with some of you, we can change the figures, but yes. We really can't change our own hearts. Yeah. God changes our hearts. And that's what the new covenant's about. So the first term, God is going to inscribe his character on ours. Second term, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Um. Israel is estranged from God now. At some point, go read um, Hosea chapter 2 and 3. You'll need one to make sense out of, the, of 2 and 3. But in chapter 2, they're so sinful, but he promises to save them. And he's going to, he's going to make it hard for them to pursue their sin. And he's going to channel them by the way he makes it hard for them to sin. He's going to channel them right back to, them, to himself. And he says, I'm going to betroth you to me, and I'm going to give you the bride price of faithfulness and, and uh, forgotten the righteousness and so on. Are you with me here? But chapter 3 comes back, but in the meantime, Haggai and Hosea must go back to his first wife, apparently. I'm, I'm not convinced of that absolutely, but I think that's what it is. He must go back to his first wife, who's, who's been a prostitute. And he says to her, I'm, I, I will live with you and you will live with me, but, but we will not, we'll be estranged. And that's what God says, this is the way Israel is going to be. I'm going to remove king and priest. I'm going to remove temple and sacrifice. Are you with me here? And I'll live with you many days. So they're estranged. 
living in the same house with God, as it were. Are you with me here? Yes. So a day is coming when God will again acknowledge them as his own people. Verse 11, third term. They shall not each, each one uh, anymore teach his fellow citizen and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. No more need for Jewish evangelism. The fourth term, because I will be merciful to their sins and their lawless acts, I will remember no more. I got it backwards, but maybe you can follow that. Four terms to the, to the covenant. Uh, in, this, in these four terms, how many of them are in force today? Has God written his character on our character? He has. So you don't sin anymore? Oh, you do? Then he hasn't written his character on your character. He's writing it, but it's not there yet. We call this sanctification. We're in the midst of it, but it's not complete. So this isn't in full force yet. I will be their God and they will be my people. Is that in force for us as the people of God? Yes. Yeah. Is it the case we don't need to do any more evangelism? Third term. No. no. Is it the case that there is forgiveness for, in, for iniquities and, and for transgressions? Yes. yes. Okay. There are two terms that are in force now for the church. How would we get in on it if we're not Israel and Judah? Huh? Romans. Romans. <laughs> yeah, I think more more Ephesians than Romans. <clears throat> yeah, grafted in. Yeah, I think there's more going on that. Boy, that's a tough passage. Sufficient to the day are the evils thereof. <laughs> uh, but, in, but in Ephesians, one of the one of the images that God uses for the church is that we are the bride of Christ. Um, who is Prince William and Prince? No, Prince. Harry? Is William's the heir? William's the heir, is that right? He's married to Kate? Okay. If you ask me about something in the 10th century BC, I can answer that. <laughs> so, <clears throat> if William becomes king, if they don't dissolve the monarchy before that happens, if William becomes king, uh, Kate will be called what? Queen. Queen. H- how much of, of uh, the glory and honor of William does she get to share? All Essentially all of it. By right of descent? No. No. By royal blood. By being, well, she's not even of royal blood. Huh? It's because she married the king. We're married to the king, and whatever belongs to the king belongs to us. Unfortunately, whatever belongs to us belongs to him too. That's why he died on the cross. So our sin was, in, was, was um, imputed to him so that his righteousness might be imputed to us. Are you with me here? So he still bears the marks of the nails and the, and the crown and the spear because what we have, he has. That's what we said in Romans, wasn't it? If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God. What's the next term? Joint heirs. Joint heirs, which means? 
we, we inherit the whole, everything that Jesus inherits. So, so in him, we are participating in the new covenant, but it's altogether out of, out of order because this is what we'll see in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Our, our, whole, our whole purpose is to so enjoy the blessing of God and live in the blessing of God that Israel will become jealous and, and start seeking its own blessing. We're doing a real good job. <laughs> so, so now then I have to ask the question, well, if, if only two of the terms are in any way active for the church, I'm sorry, not in any way active, if, if only two of the terms are really active, really in force for the church, the other two are, are either on their way or way off, when will the new covenant be fully fulfilled? I was just going to ask you that. I was thinking Good. When in the end times? Well, when Jesus comes back. Yeah, which, what, what are we talking about when Jesus comes well, back? Well, is it going to be the case in the millennium that there will be no more need for Jewish evangelism? No. No. Then it won't be in the millennium. When will Israel and Judah come to enjoy the, the full blessing of the new covenant? New heavens, new, new heavens and new earth. That's what we've been talking about since chapter 2. Um, not to angels. Did he subject the world which is coming about which we are speaking? <laughs> you remember this? So, so the new covenant is something that's waiting for the, uh, the end of the millennium, the final rebellion, and the establishment of the new heavens and new earth, and then it will be able to, we'll be able to say what Revelation says, says, that the tabernacle of God is with men, and the whole human race will be blessed because... As Paul says in Romans 1, it's to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Yes? So the Jew first has to get it in the millennium before all the nations get it in the new heavens and new earth. There's a lot of rebellion in the, old, in the, in the millennium. Uh, so the new covenant, this passage, is one of the critical points in saying we're talking not, folks, about how to be born again. And we're not talking so much about how to be sanctified. We're talking about how do we get to that time, the new heavens and the new earth. What does it look like? What's it take? And the beginning point for us is I have to have a high priest who is a better high priest than Aaron could be because Aaron couldn't take anybody to the fulfillment. Didn't take anybody to the fulfillment. I have to have a high priest who serves in a better temple, tabernacle, than Aaron did. I have to have a better sacrifice than Aaron. And I have to have a better hope than Aaron. In verse 5 of chapter 8, yeah. they serve as a system of worship over the copy of the shadow of the real, real one in heaven. Yeah. Is, is that heaven, speaking of the heavens and the earth, new heaven and new earth, yeah. or is that in heaven? He, he quotes here from Psalms, uh, but he, he says this to David. I mean, he says it to Moses. Um, Be sure that you build everything according, or make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you in the mountain. Um, even David, when he built the temple, got the, got the plans for the temple from God. Uh, read first King, uh, read, uh, it may be first Chronicles on that. I can't remember. I don't think it's in second Samuel. Um, perhaps it is, but I think it's in, it's certainly in first Chronicles. So, so 
there's something in heaven, and you would know this as well from the book of Revelation. The, uh, there's the altar where the souls are under the altar waiting for justice, and there is, there is a time, I think it's in chapter 11, where the, where the Holy of Holies is opened and the Ark of the Covenant appears. And you remember this? So all of this is there uh, some way. Some way, somewhere, yeah. place. Yeah, there's something like this that heaven will be able to reveal to us. When we get there, we'll think, of course, that's exactly what it had to be. Shouldn't have been looking for a building in the first place, but, but it's so clear, it's so obvious. Why, why did we ever wonder about it? But it's, uh, there, there's this pattern. And by the way, if you're looking at the tabernacle as a pattern, there's a time when you've got to get rid of the pattern and go to the reality. Yes or no? So that's what Hebrews is talking about. Chapter 8, verse 13. In calling this one new, he has made the first. And what is growing old, what is becoming obsolete, is getting old and it's near disappearing. Yeah, the old covenant. In chapter 9, he's going to turn, having talked about the covenant, he's going to turn and start talking about the the ministry at the tabernacle, specifically sacrifice. Verses 1 to 10, I don't need to belabor. Um, Here he he goes back through the uh, issues of what the tabernacle was like and what its ministry was like, with special reference in chapter 9 to two sacrifices. One is the Day of Atonement series of sacrifices, and the other is the the, uh, uh, offering of the red heifer. I only want to get through verse 14 tonight, but we have 31 minutes to do it, so uh, I must move. So I'm just going to leave that and say, look at verse 8. A quick, a quick review, the tabernacle has two parts. The, ta- the, the tent proper has two parts. It has the holy place and the most holy place. The most holy place is set apart. Only the high priest can go in. So verse 8 and 8 to 10 are going to belabor that point. Verse 8, the Holy Spirit is making this point clear, that the way into the holy place is not yet available while the first tent remains standing, which is a parable for the time then present, according to which gifts and sacrifices were offered, which cannot perfect the conscience in respect to the, uh, the worshiper. How many times have you um, committed some sin and you go to the Lord and you say, Lord, you told us, by the way, I don't think 1 John 1, 9 teaches this, but I'm, I'm assuming most of you do, so I'm going I'm to take what I think most of you use John, 1 John 1, 9, 4. You go and you agree with God, that was sin. And you come away. Do you? How, how many times have you felt just absolutely forgiven and cleansed and free? Sometimes, or most of the time, all the time. I can't say that about myself. I, could this be really? I know. Yeah, I didn't ask you that. I asked you about how much, how often do you really feel clean in your conscience? Is, is this what you really want? Or is this, a, is this enough? And I have Bibles. I don't know whether I still have them or not, but they're old 
New Testaments that I've worked in for years, and I have notes in some of them, true repentance and all kinds of verses about what true, you see, see you, there's a rabbi who says, um, it's a modern rabbi who says, true repentance occurs when the, the next time the temptation comes, you're not even tempted. And until that has happened, you haven't repented. Now, of course, he's wrong. Okay, but, yeah. Um, so, so, is it, is it really the case that by simply agreeing with God, our sins are cleansed and, uh, and, and we are forgiven? Well, that sounds like what 1 John 1, 9 is saying, doesn't it? 1 John 1, 7, let me just make a problem for you. 1 John 1, 7 says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light. Now, what does it mean to walk in the light? That's the critical question at this point. Well, Charles Ryrie, if, if, if you've written a Bible, then you have, to, you have to say, the guy surely knows what he's talking about. Amen? So, Charles Now, I think he's right, frankly, because there are some things that go on in 1 John that, that include this. Not This isn't all, but Charles Ryrie says, walking in the light must be living obediently. And 1 John has such a large emphasis on living obediently that I think, yeah, he's probably right. It's probably, probably part of living in the light. So here, 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So now I've got two, not one, thing that I must do to be forgiven. To be forgiven, I must agree with God, and I must live obediently. So I have to be obedient before I can be forgiven? Well, that's what the text says. If 1 John 1, 9 says I have to confess to be forgiven, 1 John 1, 7 says I have to be obedient to be forgiven. But you've been saying over and over that. I know. <laughs> that's not what, what I want to do is create a tension in you, and at some point maybe we can go back and, re- and discuss that again. The, the point in 1 John 1 is not brothers and sisters, to talk about your spiritual life. The point in 1 John 1 is to address the problem of false teachers that have come into the community. So how do I tell who they are? Well, false teachers claim to have fellowship with God, but they walk in the darkness. True teachers uh, walk in the light. False teachers claim that they have no penalty uh, associated with their sin. True teachers can talk about their sins publicly. False teachers claim that they haven't even sinned. Are you with me here? Uh, so the, the issues are fundamentally different. We're not even talking about how to, how to help your spiritual life in 1 John 1. Folks, not everything in the Bible was written about you. Some things are written about other people. And 1 John 1 is talking about apostles, not talking about you. So you need, to, you need to read the passage much more carefully. But coming back to Hebrews 9, then, how often did an Israelite bring a, a sacrifice to the temple and go away, having been assured by the priest that he was forgiven? And he knew he was forgiven in a sense because the death penalty isn't ex- executed against him. It's only executed against the, 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 the animal. How often does he go away feeling really forgiven in his soul? 
His conscience is clear and clean. Um, So verse 9, which was a parable for the time then present according to which gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in respect of his conscience. Since they are only matters of food and drink and different washings, then how does he describe them? Yeah, fleshly regulations established until the time of setting things straight. When Moses sprinkled the people, Exodus 24, 8, 24, 7, he sprinkled the people with blood. And in 24, 8, he said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord your God is making with you today. Where did the blood go when he sprinkled the people? Say the obvious. On their, on their flesh. When Jesus applies the blood, symbolically in the Lord's Supper, when he applies the blood, where does he apply it? By the way, he quotes Exodus 24.8 when he makes the Lord, when he does the Lord's Supper. So, where does he apply the blood? To our clothes? To our skin? Inside, Yes? That's what this, the rest of this passage is about. So verse 11. Christ, having come as a high priest of good things that are, that are coming, through the greater and more, ex- and, and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, nor by the, by the blood of goats and bulls, but by his own blood, entered once for all into the holy place, having, achieved, having attained you have eternal redemption. One commentator suggests, and I think this probably is, is uh, consistent with the message of the book, eschatological redemption. The redemption promise that's necessary for the new covenant to be enforced. Um, for if the blood of goats and bulls, and this is critical, this, this, this verse you must understand. For if the blood of, bo- of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctifies to the point of cleansing the flesh. Is that true? When you're sprinkled by a goat or a bull, is your flesh cleansed? (laughs) Some say no, some say yes. Let me give you an illustration. Suppose your mother dies um, three days before Passover. Uh, in the Old Testament, there were no undertakers. It was the family that had to prepare the body for burial. But in touching a dead body, you have become defiled with a major defilement. It's a defilement that is so great that it, it, there's a whole ritual of seven days, seven to eight days, that's necessary to deal with this defilement. And, and since it was just three days before Passover, you can't take part in Passover because you have touched a dead body. But if, on the, uh, on the other hand, 10 days before, Day of Atone, before Passover, your mother dies and you bury her, you, you will get her in the ground the very day of death. Uh, even today, Israel does this. Um, you can go to the temple early and go through the ritual of the red heifer 
and the ritual, ritual of the red heifer will remove the defilement of the flesh so that when Passover comes, you can participate. So it is the case, verse 13. Is this, and it's critical that you understand this. The, the, verse 13 is saying, if you have one of these major defilements, the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctifies to the cleansing of the flesh. Now, what are we talking about on a red heifer? Well, it's a calf that's red. <laughs> Specifically, I've been told, now I grew up in one of the bigger cow towns of, of the United States, Oklahoma City, <laughs> but I don't know beans about cattle. But I, I've been told that a heifer is a female that's, that's never been bred, has never been, right? So it's a young calf, a young animal. Um, well, that's never had a baby. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Because it's a heifer till it has that first baby. Okay, all right, that helps. I, it gives me better information than I've had. Um, it's, it must be red, and according to the rabbis, it must be red, so red that they check the animal from head to tail, looking to see if there are as many as two black hairs growing out of the same follicle. And if there, if there are, it's disqualified as a red heifer. Israel's been trying to breed a red heifer uh, that, according to my knowledge, since sometime in the 1990s, maybe earlier, they've not. They they thought they had one in '99, and it was disqualified. They thought they had another one, and it was disqualified. Uh, they've been importing red cattle from Mississippi and Texas for for all that period, trying to breed a red heifer, and they haven't been able to. I, I can't even imagine. What is your job? Well, I'm the red heifer checker. <laughs> Can you imagine? I just, places I don't want to go with that. So, yeah, Fred? One person told me that in order for the sacrifices to start on the temple that they intend to build, they, have all, they already have the implements. They have They're getting the it ready. There, that they have to have the ashes of a red heifer and that they are searching for it. And, and they, 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 they likely are not going to find them. Um, they're going to, that's why they're trying to breed a red heifer. They, they don't know what clean and unclean are in specific terms. There, there are whole books written on what's clean and unclean. But they're not, they, they're not written in such a way that they're clear to modern readers. So there is not a clear definition of what's clean and unclean. But if they had the ashes of the heifer, they could, they could apply that to people. And they w- we'd know then that they would be clean. And then they could begin the sacrificial ritual. Um, a professor from Israel came to Memphis. <clears throat> Memphis University of Memphis has a, the Birnbaum School of uh, I, I guess it's the Birnbaum School of Judaic Studies. This guy was from Israel. He was Israeli born. He was a um, what, do they, what do they call the cactus? The uh, cactus fruit. The um, can't remember it now. Um, but the uh, the guy was teaching the history of Jerusalem. One of my friends, Barry Mooney, was in that class. And he said, during the class, somebody asked the prof, will you ever build the temple? He said, if the government will turn their backs, we will build it tomorrow. And I, I read even this week that there's some plan to dismantle the, <laughs> this, is, this is a reasonable plan, to dismantle the uh, Dome of the Rock and move it to Mecca and build the temple in Jerusalem. Now, that's not going to happen. That, boy, those folks, are, they'd go ballistic if you think they're upset now. Uh, you ain't seen nothing if they did that. 
but the but there are places on the Temple Mount where the some of the rabbis think they could build the temple, and it would be okay. What'd you say? There's four of them that I've read about. Four places. Yeah, one of them being the uh, where the Well of Souls is. Yes. One on the northern part, one where the Al-Aqsa Mosque is, and one of the well, Al-Aqsa couldn't be, but the, the Well of Souls might be, and that's on the north end, mm-hmm. so or it's actually north of the um, Dome of the Rock. The, the, the point is, though, that until they can have somebody who's clearly clean, Levitically pure, you can't go to the altar. So they've got to have the, the red heifer sacrifice. And here's what the sacrifice is like. First of all, to get the ashes, you must have this red heifer and you must, you must sacrifice it so that the animal is burned completely to ash. If there are any clumps of fat, any, any large bits of, of bone left, it's invalidated. You've got to start over with another animal, and it's hard to find one. Uh, and, uh, and so you've got to burn it completely to ash, and when it's burned completely to ash, you gather the ashes in, a, in, a, in a, an urn, and you keep it. Um, According to the to the a fairly late source, uh, around A.D. 400, uh, all that was necessary maybe it, maybe as as early as A.D. 200, all that was necessary was enough ash to fit before your thumb and uh, between your thumb and, and first finger. Uh, but you mix it with running water, with blood, with uh, the blood from a uh, from I think it's a bird I can't remember. And then you take a scarlet thread and a hyssop branch and you dip it in that mixture and sprinkle whoever's defiled. And it takes a whole week to do this with lots of sacrifices, very expensive to, to rid someone of these major defilements. When Jesus said to the leper, go to the priest, show yourself to the priest and make the sacrifice that Moses required, it's essentially this same offering, this all, the same series of offerings. So you're making sin offerings and you're making... Uh, you're making Guilt offerings, and then you then then uh, you go through this sprinkling three or four times, and finally you you must offer a uh, peace offering and a and a uh, burnt offering. It's terribly expensive to go through, which is maybe why nine of them didn't go to the priest, right? Uh, but uh, this is what we're talking about: this red heifer sacrifice. I've yeah. No, in Hebrew is it's red, yeah, yeah. Um, looking for the reference in Numbers, and I'm not seeing Numbers 19 is the passage that gives the red heifer offering. Um, so, look again at verse 13. Do you have if at the beginning for if? Verse 13 sets up a condition. You have to you have to know whether this condition is valid or invalid. Does the red heifer sacrifice bring cleansing of the flesh? What's the answer now? Yes. yes. No question. Now we're going to argue, we're going to give the result. Okay, what, uh, this is the evidence. Verse 13 is the evidence. What's the proper conclusion to draw from it? If blood, fr- if blood from a dead animal cleanses the flesh then what will the blood of Christ do? A lot more. A lot more. Now, let me say here, cleansing is not primarily a, a moral category. It's primarily in, in the Old Testament. It's not primarily a moral category. It's primarily a ritual category. So a woman having given birth, given birth 
is is not clean. It's not that she's dirty and wicked. It's that ladies when you when you gave birth were you in a normal condition of life? Well, this is a terrible thing God did, imposed on women. Horrible. He hates women. Clearly, hates women. Because after you give birth, for a boy, you have 40 days off. And for a girl, you have 80 days off. Terrible. Yes? Can't, can't cook food. Isn't that, isn't that terrible? It's what you want to do. After, after the baby's born, you want to get up? Let's, let me in the kitchen. I want to go cook. Amen? Let me have the vacuum cleaner. Right? That's what you want? No. <laughs> so, so you've gone. I, I, I couldn't believe when I sat with Jen. I was, uh, our first child was born while I was in the Army. They wouldn't let me in the, in the uh, delivery room, or, and certainly not in the labor room. But, um, but the second one, I was with her while she was going through labor. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this is... <laughs> I can't imagine this. Carol Burnett said, if you want to know what the pain of childbirth is like, take your lower lip and pull it up over your head. <laughs> and I thought, well, I'm not going to do that, but it gives me some kind of idea. <laughs> the, the, uh, the point is that uh, a woman is not evil for having given birth. That's a blessing from God. But she's not in a normal condition. And to be returned to normalcy, to, to show that she has moved from that time of, of, of being sequestered to the time when she returns to normal life, you go through the, the ritual of a purification offering. Not the red heifer, but, but just a purification offering that you make, and uh, you're returned to, to normal life. Uh, am I making sense to you? This is not moral, it's ritual. Then, folks, the effect of the red heifer probably would have brought great joy to somebody who has been healed from leprosy. I'm, I'm, I can go home. I can be at home again. Probably would mean a lot to somebody who's, who's buried a loved one. I thought that our mourning practices in the United States were kind of barbaric for years until I met a man who was a Christian and was a, a, a mortician. And I asked him about it, and he said, no, he said, I don't think it is at all. He said, God has, has built us so that um, joy shared increases and sorrow shared decreases. And when we have a funeral and people walk by, I watched this with Jan's, when Jan's dad died. The family was in just, they were just hurting so deeply, as you would imagine, but he was pastoring a church in Arizona at the time. We were there for the funeral. And as, as the people would walk by, I watched the family. As people would come by weeping, I saw the family relax. I saw their physical aspect just relax. The tension was kind of relieved because there were other people who loved my dad, my husband, my brother, my, yes, are you with my, my uncle? Um, and that was that was a great thing. So... After you have gone through the morning and you're, you're, you're cleansed and you can return to normal life, this is the thing I've noticed over the years, too, at funerals. When I, I thought going to the gravesite was just something wrong with that. Um, and yet, the divorce of my parents taught me. 
There are things that are worse than death. You can walk away from a graveside, but you can't walk away from a divorce. Uh, and I grieved for 17 years when my parents divorced with, with my grandfather, whom I nearly idolized when he died. I, grie I grieved for months without question. I still miss him. He died when I was 10. But, um, but you can walk away from a grave. You know you have to go back to normal life. You can't just sit at a grave for the rest of your life. Yes? The red heifer sacrifice makes that point where you walk away from what had moved you out of normal life and you walk back into normal life again as that rite of passage, if you will. Does this make sense to you? But if you needed the red heifer sacrifice because of some sin you committed, sin's still there. And your propensity to sin is still there. Yes or no? So, verse 13, verse 14. If the, blood of, if, if the ashes of a heifer and the blood of a goat or a bull will cleanse the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? I was teaching Hebrews in Memphis at the college, and we had a, a building where they had, it was a new part of the building, um, and they had those, those walls that they had the uh, metal uh, studs, right, and they uh, screwed the sheetrock to the metal studs, and there wasn't much really holding those walls up, and I was standing back by the, by the wall. I was going through a lot of depression in those days, and a lot of just, how can I be a Christian if I've got so much sin in my life? How, how can this be? And I was reading this passage, this very paragraph, standing back toward the wall like this. And I read, if the, blood of the, if the ashes of a heifer and the blood of goats and all that cleanse the, sacrificed to the cleansing of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? I started studying Hebrews sometime around 1967. <laughs> and, and I thought, I got to chapter 6, I was translating it, I, I got to chapter 6, and I thought, I don't even know what's going on there. I quit for several years before I could figure out what was going on. Chapter 9 never spoke to me until that day. And suddenly I realized, the blood of Christ cleanses our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. What's the condition in the text? What'd you say, Jan? Jen, what did you say? I said Jesus' blood. Yeah, that's the only condition. There's no condition on us. When can I have the cleansing power of the blood of Christ? I have it. Well, how long after I've sinned do I have to wait till I can apply the blood of Christ for cleansing? You don't have to wait. Yes, but notice that that's future in verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ cleanse our conscience? So he's applying the blood to us. It's kind of like what he talked about to Peter when he was washing the feet of the disciples. You're, you're, you're bathed, but you need to wash your feet. So he's, he's, we have the major cleansing, but we still need to clean up every once in a while.
Are you with me? So, folks, you don't have to wait. Mother would spank me and send me to my room, and she'd say, don't come out until you're sorry. And I never could figure out how to know when I was really sorry. <laughs> it took me, I still don't know. I, I, if, what would, if, if I were explaining it to my child, don't come out till you're sorry. Well, how will I know when you're sorry? How, how will you know when I'm sorry? I, I, I'll know is not an adequate answer. But if I tell you what it looks like when you're sorry, you'll fake it. Yes? So... I'd come out, Mother, I'm so sorry. You say, you know, you're not sorry. You, <laughs> you, you, well, I could behave, but I, I, you're not sorry. You're sorry you got caught. You're not sorry you did wrong. And, you know, go back to my room. Oh, gosh, what is this? And I never could understand. And I always thought, well, you got, so there's, some, there's some period of waiting that must happen between the sin uh, and, and especially the, the awareness of the sin and being freed from it. But as I, as I, I, I almost, I fell against the wall. The wall shook <laughs> that day in class. And I almost canceled class. Folks, get out of here. I got to go to my office. I just read something I've never seen. I got to go figure out what this means. And I went on with class and then, then went to my office and got back with this and said, God, started thinking about this thing. What is he saying? Folks, once you become aware of your sin, no time needs to elapse between being aware of it and applying the blood of Christ. All you must do is claim the blood of Christ. And folks, for two weeks after that, I had a clean conscience. I had never gone two weeks in my life with a clean conscience. Scared me to death. I was brought up in a guilt culture, as most of us were. So you play on guilt to get people to come down the aisle. Um, yeah. He was suicidal. Uh, after so he was very suicidal. And he talked to me in bed about killing uh, himself. I wasn't, it wasn't just after seminary. It was through seminary. Anyway, when, you, when he understood this, he didn't dwell upon his past sin. And um, I didn't get it told later, and I realized by dwelling on my past sin, that keeps me from doing ministry of Christ. Oh, thank you. Let me pick it up right there. What's the end of the verse? To To serve the living God. With a defiled conscience, I can't serve. I gotta have a clean conscience to serve. Um... Did you want to say more, Jan? All right. The the I, I began to realize, folks, at the Lord's Supper, um, and taking the cup, he blessed it and gave it to his disciples and said, "Did he say drink all of it, or all of you drink it?" He said all of you drink it, which is interesting because. In the Mass, it's withheld from the laity. Um, but all of you drink it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And Luke and, and Paul say, do this to remember me. Well, what does it mean to remember? Folks, it's real important that you learn this. All through the Scriptures, to take one example. God remembered Noah. 
had God forgotten Noah? So what does it mean that God remembered Noah? It means he began to act upon what he knew. When he says in our text here in the, in the New Covenant, look at verse 12 again, 8.12, because I will be merciful to their iniquities and their sins, I will remember no more. Does, it, does that mean God's sitting there thinking, Jim Allman did something last Tuesday. What was it? I was going to remember that. It's oh dear, what, Gabriel, do you get the book? What did you, that surely can't be point. So, so what? No, I'm talking about God and the angel Gabriel. Oh. <laughs> Those are grandsons. Uh, um, <clears throat> the the point is that God doesn't use what He knows. He's an omniscient person. He can't forget. God has never said to forget, but he is, he is said to not remember. It's not the same thing. So when I, when, I, when I say I will not remember, I'm not going to use it against you anymore. So I suddenly realized, when I come away from the Lord's Supper, and I have taken symbolically the blood of Christ into my body, I have symbolically done what Jesus has been doing, cleansing my inner person. And if I walk away still with a defiled conscience, I have forgotten Jesus. But if I take the cup and I realize, I contemplate what it means, I can walk away with the, from the table with a clean conscience because I have seen it. This cup is my blood of the covenant. Do this to remember me. Am I making sense to you? And it doesn't have to be hours or even minutes. It can be instantaneously upon recognizing this. You have to ask yourself a question. And with this, we must stop. What's more authoritative? Your sin or the blood of Christ? Well, that's what we say. I'm asking you in your own faith, in your own life experience, what's more authoritative, your conscience or the word of God? For many of us, it's our conscience. Because I remember my sin. I dwell on my sin. But what I look at, I become like. And I share its destiny. So if I'm focused upon the sin that I've committed, and I've committed enough, then I'll never be able to serve the living God. But if I focus on Jesus, then I am fit because his blood has made me fit. That's Second Corinthians chapter 2 and chapter 3, chapter 4. I'm fit to serve. Let's close with prayer. Uh, Father, I hardly even know how to pray now. I hope like fire what I'm saying is true. If, if I'm wrong, if I'm leading these people astray, please protect them. But if this is truth, through your Holy Spirit, build it into our lives that we may live before you in a way that honors our great and glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.